This is a Federal News Network podcast. A late 19th century law called the Chinese Exclusion Act put a 10-year ban on Chinese laborers immigrating to the United States. Subsequent laws limited Chinese immigration until Congress condemned the whole thing back in 2012. Now the National Archives and Records Administration has digitized and put online some 2,200 Chinese Exclusion Act cases files. For how and why this came about, the Director of Archival Operations at NARA's Denver Center, Gwen Granados. Ms. Granados, good to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be here. And we should point out that you are in Denver now, but this all took place in Riverside, California, when you were the director out there. Yes. Well, tell us about this project. The Chinese Exclusion Act was a law, and that must have resulted in immigration case loads. Is that what happened? Correct. So there were actually a series of laws that we refer to as the Chinese Exclusion Acts, the first one being in 1882, and then another one in 1892, and then 1902 made the ban on actually Chinese laborers permanent until 1943. As you can imagine, Immigration and Naturalization Service at the time, which would be USCIS now, created case files relating to the enforcement of those laws. Those case files are across the National Archives system, not just in Riverside. Interesting that this law occurred after the construction and completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, which used a great deal of Chinese labor. In fact, those two things are related in the influx in Chinese labor made nativists in the United States very nervous. And so that is what resulted in those laws being passed. And the law cited laborers. Does that mean that someone who is Chinese from China and they could play the cello really well, for example, they would be allowed in. But if they were someone that could drive a railroad spike, they were not? So the focus was largely on allowing merchants, people with financial investment in the United States. So merchants were exempt from those restrictions. And what we end up seeing in a lot of these case files is individuals, men, mostly trying to prove their merchant status to be able to remain in the country or to mostly to leave the country and come back. Therefore, these case files then could be ancestral documents of people now living and thriving in the United States. Yes. And that has been historically the number one community that researchers in these records are family historians and Chinese community historians who want to learn a little bit about individuals. And how many are there of these, do you estimate? Oh, I haven't. I don't actually know the total volume across NARA, but it's going to range into the tens of thousands for sure. And what form are they in before being digitized? Are they crumbling to pieces or are they on pretty good stock? It depends on the time period, as any archivist can tell you, paper changes over time, but for the most part, they're in pretty good condition. There's just a lot of fasteners as a new piece of paper gets added, somebody staples that in. So there's a lot of fastener removal that we've had to do to digitize these. But other than that, they're in pretty good shape. And they're stored all over the place? Yes, they're across the National Archives system because the INS offices were across the country. And so those came in to various locations from Boston to Riverside, with a large contingent of them being at our facility near San Francisco in San Bruno, California, and a large grouping also in our Seattle office. We're speaking with Gwen Granados. She is Director of Archival Operations at the National Archives at Denver. And how did the whole project come up in the first place? What made NARA decide, let's do these records of this particular piece of history? 
It started kind of small. There was a meeting between myself and a representative of the Chinese American Historical Society in Southern California. We just ran into each other and started to have conversations about these case files. And the Chinese American Historical Society was interested in digitizing them. And I told them that labor was the issue. We didn't have enough staff to be able to digitize these records. And they came back to me about six months later with students in hand from California State University, San Bernardino. So we were able to start digitizing. So in a sense, you got Chinese labor to look at records about Chinese labor a century earlier. <laughs> Essentially, yes, it, it was definitely the descendants of these records, of the people in these records that drove the digitization of the records. And I imagine sure. the difficulty of getting them online is not digitizing. You pass them through a scanner, and NARA is pretty good at that. But how do you index them when people whose names might have been rendered in Chinese characters originally could have dozens of types of spellings and transliterations into English? Yes, that has been a challenge with these records over time is that the translations of names are coming largely from non-Chinese speaking immigration authorities. And so a lot of the names can be misspelled and the researchers in these records are, are very familiar with that. And even within the records themselves, names change. And there are also cultural reasons why there are different names for Chinese immigrants and Chinese citizens. So we actually have now that we've put them up online, have created what we call a citizen archivist mission for those records and other Chinese heritage records. And people are going in and transcribing and then also adding tags. So if there are variant spellings and things like that, those are getting pulled out now and people can start to search in the National Archives catalog that way. Because someone with a particular Chinese last name rendered in English, it could have been different a generation or two ago. I'm thinking of like we used to call Beijing Peking at one time. And, you know, even in the American culture, the references to overseas nations and cities evolves over time. Right, right. And and a last name like Xi, you know, XI can also be rendered as CHI and in, in, in other ways in English. For someone looking to find these, what types of learnings might they get from reading one of the records? Well, there's a lot of material in these records that comes out of the tendency of immigration and naturalization to do interrogations. There was some um, fraud involved with this particular law, and there were people that were trying to get around the law and coaching people who became known as paper sons, so claiming that they were related to people that they weren't. And when immigration kind of uncovered that this was happening, they started these really intense interrogations of individuals who were leaving the country and then coming back. And what we find in those is some very detailed descriptions of places that people had been when they were in the United States, their family relationships, their business relationships, and also information about their families and villages in China. So it, it really is a great way to learn not only about somebody's individual history, but about how community develops and about how the migration occurs from China to the United States. And just to get back to a technical point, you mentioned transcriptions. A lot of the early records, and how late did they go that they were handwritten in fountain pen by the INS person? 
Well, you know, luckily for our transcribers, right around the turn of the century, the typewriter becomes incredibly important in the American office. So a lot of these are actually typewritten. And a lot of them, because there were so many people going through this process, there are forms. And so the forms are printed with, you know, just names kind of written in. So it's not too too bad there are some of the early records uh, that are handwritten, but for the most part, they're typewritten. Because census records, the ones I have from my family, the most recent ones they released, well, maybe not now, were 1940. And those were mm-hmm. taken door to door by someone with really good penmanship, but it is written into a form. Right, right. And 1950, by the way, is the most recent census that you can find online. So head over and do 10 more years of research if you get a chance. But yeah, because these are are more case file oriented and not kind of the ad hoc, like a census going out to somebody's home, they do tend to be a little bit more formulated. and And have you had any levels of uptake in looking at the online or any other reactions that you have to making this resource available? Yes, we've had a lot of interest online. Um, It is one of our most popular citizen archivist missions for involvement. And I know that that is because the community itself is very involved. And I have spoken with people who are, you know, family members of people who were putting online who are transcribing their own families materials and then moving on to transcribe other materials as well. And they're sharing it with each other. And there's just really a community around these records, which is wonderful to see. Gwen Granados is Director of Archival Operations at the National Archives at Denver. Thanks so much for joining me. You're very welcome. And we'll post this interview along with links to some of those records of the Chinese Exclusion Act files at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, Visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn 
uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when he'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks 
that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.